This is Physician to Physician Plant-Based Nutrition. I'm Tracy Cushing, an emergency medicine physician. I'm also a mom, a wife, four-time Ironman, and I've been plant-based for 11 years. And I'm Eden English. I'm an internal medicine physician, a hiker, a ski boarder, a mom, and I've been vegan for the last five years. We're passionate about helping other doctors learn the science behind plant-based eating so they can help their patients develop sustainable, healthy eating habits. Each episode, we're breaking down the science behind plant-based eating and answering the questions we know most doctors have and most patients ask. Hey, Eden. Hey, Tracy. What did you have for dinner last night? Last night was awesome. My husband worked all day, but then still made a quick dinner. And it was this coconut curry rice with broccoli and tofu and chickpeas. And the coconut curry sauce was like all over it. So it was fantastic. And then I think I have enough leftovers for lunch today. What about you, Tracy? What'd you have for dinner last night? We got back from four days of camping to an empty refrigerator and nothing. And we're desperately craving a hot already prepared meal. So we went to one of our go-to places in Boulder. We went to Buddha Thai on Iris, where they will make everything fish sauce-free and vegan-friendly. And uh, so I basically just had tofu and vegetables and rice. And uh, my husband and kiddo had pad thai, and it was amazing and hot and already prepared. And it didn't come out of a bear canister. So it was a win. That does sound awesome. And we have a wonderful guest today. It is Audrey Sanchez. She is the executive director of Balanced.org and also the producer of this podcast, which we could not do without her. A wonderful human all around and here to chat with us today about policies. But first, we want to hear what you had for dinner last night. Yes. So this is a great question because I usually forget, but I did make note of it last night. So last night, we did homemade cauliflower crust pizza. Very choose your own adventure. So in my house, I'm not a very good cook, I have to admit that. For someone who spends all day, every day of the week thinking about food and nutrition, I'm not a good cook. I don't enjoy it. And so we do a lot of a grain, a green, a protein in the sauce. And if you think about it, that's kind of just a pizza, right? So you can do it with rice or quinoa and like build your bowl or whatever. But last night we had cauliflower crust pizza. I prefer a barbecue sauce on my pizza. And since it's choose your own adventure, it's like barbecue sauce with some mushrooms and spinach and onions and broccoli. Um, and my kid, who is also like very into nutrition, but very much a foodie, built their own pizza, lots of vegetables, very filling. And I also had that for breakfast in case you're wondering. <laughs> How I started my day off right today. It was the other of, of my personal pizza. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's great. So tell us a little bit about Balanced. We're familiar with the work that Balanced does, but for those out there that might not know about it, can you just give us a little kind of summary of what Balanced is, what it does, where it's going, what it wants to be? Absolutely. Happy to. Nothing I would rather talk about more except maybe broccoli on pizza, but Balanced is even better than that, if you can believe it. So Balanced is a nutrition security and public health advocacy organization. We work at the institutional level to change nutrition policies and uh, help implement those policies in community institutions like schools, hospitals, offices, any place where there is a like centralized 
environment for people to eat. So we work on improving the healthfulness of food environments so that people can make healthier choices. And all of our work is predicated on the idea that the food environment is the number one determiner of food choice. So people can't eat what is not available or people can only eat what is available. And uh, so our work is to make sure that those food environments encourage and promote health-promoting choices. Um, and we also do some policy work at both the federal and state level. Awesome. And speaking of that, I think it would be really helpful for folks that don't, we all are familiar with kind of the food guidelines and the food pyramid and the recommendations that are out there. Um, but I don't think a lot of folks really understand where those recommendations come from, how they get made, and how they don't always have health, whether planetary or individual, at the forefront. So give us a little primer 101 on federal food policy and why we eat what we eat in this country. Yeah, I love this conversation. And I will preface it by saying it is slightly complicated. Um, and the reason people don't know more is on purpose, right? It is a complicated process that involves a lot of influence from outside sources. It's not a fully objective process where health and nutrition experts come together and say, okay, here's what we know about an optimal diet. Here are the recommendations we're going to make. It is much more, I wonder how much the dairy industry cares about this issue and let's chat with them. But I will also say that even with our dietary guidelines that are recommended by the USDA, the vast majority of people's diets do not reflect those dietary guidelines because our food environments actually don't reflect them. So if you think about it for just one second, even in its most recent iteration, so the 2020-2025 dietary guidelines for Americans recommend that 50% of the plate be fruits and vegetables, 25% be protein with only 15% of that at like most coming from animal source, animal sources, um, and then the rest being whole grains and some fats, you know, and then a little wiggle room because everybody needs some joy in their life and no one's taking away your oat milk ice cream. But our food environments, if you walk into any grocery store, it's not actually going to be 50% or 75% whole food, minimally processed, plant-based items. It's, there's some stuff on the periphery, but the vast majority of our food environments are processed or ultra-processed because that's where the profit is. Um, and so it is this very complicated process to get dietary guidelines that then trickle down into schools and other food policy, but that has no impact on what our actual food environment experience looks like. How long have you been fighting this fight <laughs> and doing this work Yeah, where you are, your job is so important and so powerful, and yet there's so many things lined up against you? And tell us what it's been like. So Balanced was formed in 2017 is like our official, like this is official, this is when we exist, this is the work we're going to take on. So I would say technically, professionally, six years. And what it has been like is difficult and slow, <laughs> which is actually how all policy works. Even if you're working like one-on-one -on -one with a food director in a school district in Nebraska, difficult and slow because food is something that is very personal to people, but it is also very universal to people. And so we're always navigating the changing food environment, the changing landscape, 
competing priorities. And so our work is really committed to playing the long game um, because also health is a long game. And so it's not just like, oh, if we get this changed overnight, everybody will be healthy overnight. We are working to create policies and food environments that promote health in the short term. Oh, wow, that meal made me feel really good. I don't want to fall asleep at my desk, but also building habits in the long term. I know how to make healthy choices when presented with these things. My body wants this is you know, going to make me feel good in the long term. And so we are very cognizant of the fact that this work is not an overnight process. We respect that. And it's really important for us to have that perspective. Otherwise, it would be impossible to sustain this for the next however many number of decades or centuries it will require to, to get it right. Wow, that's so optimistic and disheartening, I would say, at the same time. What? That's, that's policy exactly. work. Optimistic <laughs> and disheartening. It's exactly. a dance. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the local level, what folks can do locally, say, with their school boards or uh, for their cafeteria food for people with school-aged children who might live in states where there's a very heavy cattle industry, for example, Colorado, or and other places where perhaps food decisions are being made by industry? Absolutely, yes. So this is this question or this idea really encapsulates both the origin story of my own work in this space and the origin story of Balanced. So just for some perspective, I grew up in a town of 1500 in the middle of Kansas. I lived one and a half blocks away from the sale barn and the county that I grew up in had such like fertile, rich grass and soil in the Flint Hills in Kansas that between one and two million cattle are moved through every year just to graze before processing, just so their like final few months is filled with those vitamins and minerals and stuff. There's a lot of health promoting stuff for cows, but then when we get it, it's not so health promoting. But then balance our original like our core program is this work, this community-led advocacy. So what we do at Balance is we help people in their local communities build, launch, and run healthy menu campaigns where they are a stakeholder in that institution. It is much harder as an outside organization to go into a school district and say, hey, this school district in New Jersey, I'm this mom in Kansas and I care about public health, do what I say. But when a mom in New Jersey says, my child in this school deserves healthier menus, the districts listen. And so we support the people who want to make this happen where they are locally, get it done. That is everything from the research. Who makes these decisions in your school district? What is your food service setup? What kitchen supplies do they have? What, is the, what are the labor constraints? What are the cost constraints? What does procurement look like? So we help them do all that research. We help them make the case for why it's important. And then building on that, we make sure as an organization, we provide that district with the how. So when a district or a hospital system or any institution says, oh yeah, you're right, I totally get it now. I would love to make these changes, but we don't know how. We say, oh, good news. We've been doing this for six years. We do know how, what, what do you need help with? And so then we provide the technical support, the connections, the training. Um, so it's, it's this, again, a dance between getting people to commit because they understand why it's so important, but then also helping them implement uh, with the tools and resources that they need. That's incredible. Tell us just to try to make it 
more more real for the listeners. Can you tell us something you've done recently where you've helped somebody with something like that? Yeah, absolutely. I love telling this story. This is my most recent favorite balance uh, initiative. So because we are nutrition security and public health focused, we are also very nutrient focused. So this is not an agenda to make the whole school vegan. This is not an agenda to save the planet from being on fire. Both of the really, really nice added benefits to the work that we do. But we also know that in addition to those benefits, there's a very real and immediate public health crisis happening with our children and with our families. We know that the vast majority of families are doing the very best they can within a food system that doesn't have their best interests at heart. But what that means is like 60 plus percent of the foods that our families consume are processed or ultra processed, linked to disease. 97% of us are deficient in fiber. Only one in 10 of us are eating the very minimum recommended amount of fruits and vegetables. And so we worked with the school district in Northern California. We had a community-led advocacy uh, initiative there where it resulted in a teacher's union passing a resolution to take to the school board. And they said, hey, we would love to have increased nutrition standards in our district. The school board was like, yes, that makes sense. Passed a resolution at the union and then the district school board started to implement it. That means the food service director is now on the hook to implement it. So we brought in our institutional support work and we are working with this you know, food and nutrition services director in this district. And I would say she's not on board at all, but committed to doing her job well, which is all we need because we also want to help her do her job well and we want to make it easy. And so we do a menu analysis. We identify all the ways that we could hit these nutrients, get more dietary fiber, reduce cholesterol, reduce saturated fat, reduce ultra processing. And we help her prioritize based on all of these things. Where do you want to start? Here's our recommendations. She's like, I love this. Okay. I need recipes for this. So our institutional team brought her back 30 recipes. We said, here's 30, pick three. Which three do you want to implement? She picked three. One of them was taking a chicken curry that she already had and making it a chickpea curry and then taste testing it with her students during summer school. Very low risk intervention. There's not as many students. She doesn't have to have as much staff training, et cetera, et cetera. We say, that is a perfect plan. Then she comes back to us and she says, hey, okay, I'm ready to try this, but I don't know where to procure chickpeas at this scale. One of the resources we had, like, we had created over the last few years is our plant-based product and vendor directory. So we called up the chickpea provider or like chickpea vendors in that directory and said, hey, we have the school district who could be a long-term client, but they don't know how to procure this. Two vendors sent her a month's supply of chickpeas. She was able to taste test it, provide her students with surveys, get back the data on whether or not they liked it, could look at the small amount of data to see the uptake of that chickpea versus chicken, and were able to continue to make decisions on how she can scale that from there. Wow, that's just awesome. I love the sort of practical approach and it's the very goal-directed, small goals, easily implementable with accountability or desired results on the end, which is great. Eden, before we move, I have a sort of a different subject. Anything else about school food before we, before I go off on a 
Just one quick thing to that story, because I'm not sure all the listeners get what the difference nutritionally is with the chicken curry versus the chickpea curry, but it's just that fiber punch. And so many of my patients tell me like, I just eat chicken, it's fine. And chicken isn't toxic. We don't have all this data about how toxic and bad for you chicken is. We have a little here and there. What we do have is that it just lacks any nutritional punch. There's no reason to eat that stuff. And there's all the bad things that chicken does for the environment and the chickens, but it's really for nutritionally. What she did was she gave people fiber, a huge punch of fiber with that shift and took some of the fat out. I mean, that was just an amazing story, Audrey. So thank you for sharing. And Tracy, take all of the turns you would like. We'll have to, we'll have to have a whole episode where all we do is talk about fiber because it is the least cool, sexy nutrient. And it is the, basically the top number one nutrient we talk about at Balanced as being the game changer. If we get more fiber in people's diets, the impact is going to be huge. But we can save that for a future episode. Or you can give us a little synopsis about the fiber campaign um, that Balanced is doing right now. That seems like a good segue. So tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we just talked about like school level nutrition policy implementation, but our North Star at Balanced is affecting state and federal policy regarding fiber, because it is this thing that has been relegated to Metamucil and prunes, and it's not cool or sexy, but our, we're dedicated to making fiber the new protein. And so I'll talk a little bit about our work with fiber at both the national and state level. So we have a focus on fiber initiative, and this is a two-part initiative. One is this public awareness element, which is, hey, this is probably the most important nutrient you haven't thought twice about. That's the BuzzFeed headline, if BuzzFeed would ever get back to us. But that is the BuzzFeed headline. You should think about fiber because it does have all of these health benefits. People think about it exclusively as this like bowel regularity issue. But we know when you have enough dietary fiber or you're getting enough dietary fiber that it affects every system in your body, every single episode this season, especially in the specialties, even without me begging or paying them to say it, somebody has mentioned fiber, right? We're talking about heart doctors. We're talking about doctors who deal with cancer, doctors who deal with the whole like immune system, mental health, even skin, inflammation. It is just so powerful to have a balanced, no pun intended, gut microbiome. And the way you start is by focusing on fiber. So we have this big public health initiative. We're working on that. At the same time, at the policy level, we have our focus on fiber advocacy campaign, where we are calling on the USDA to add a fiber component to the reimbursable meal pattern. This is where it gets a little bit tricky. So people talk about, oh, the school meals meet the guidelines. They must be healthy. But the USDA they're called FNS guidelines uh, that track meals over the course of a week, have these minimum guidelines that have two categories. One is food component. So that's you have to have X number of vegetables. Subcomponents would be green vegetables, starchy vegetables, orange and red vegetables. Then you have the fruit component, which is like fruit and then fruit juice. Bummer, because that's not really a fruit. And then there's grains. Miss Nomer here is that those are healthy grains. For foods to be considered whole grain on a school menu, they only have to be 51% whole grain. So they're called whole grain rich. Food industry has reformulated everything from the breading on chicken nuggets to cinnamon toast crunch to be 51% whole grain. 
and then they get to say whole grain cinnamon toast. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God. Major bummer, really difficult to work around. Um, And then there's this category that's like meat alternate and dairy, right? So the vast majority of center of the plate things we see in school meals are meat. And a lot of that is ultra processed meat or processed meat. So if you have a pepperoni pizza, here's how you would could potentially credit it. Whole grain crust, whole grain rich. Uh, that tomato sauce is, they credit it as a vegetable, even though tomatoes are a fruit. Additionally confusing. You have your dairy reimbursable element in the cheese, and then you would have your meat component, which would be a processed meat like a pepperoni. That is how you would be able to credit that meal. And then the second part of the reimbursable meal pattern addresses specific nutrients. So that's how many calories are you going to have in a meal based on age and grade. So for kindergarten to fourth grade or kindergarten to second grade, you might like a cap at 450 calories per meal. And don't quote me on that. That's not specific. These are examples, but per lunch. And then from third grade to sixth grade, it might be like 550 calories. And then junior high would be this amount. High school would be this amount, et cetera, et cetera. But the other components in that nutrient category are things like uh, percentage of saturated fat per calorie, sodium, sugar, et cetera. And the USDA, they look at the dietary guidelines and they say, how can we adjust our FNS guidelines so that the school food is more in line with the USDA dietary guidelines? But they're still even subpar to that. They don't even match. They're not even a one-to-one. They're just a subpar 0.25 to one, <laughs> honestly. In their most recent proposal, they said, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to make a tighter cap on added sodium and added sugar. And we said, that's fantastic. And our campaign is saying in the next five years, after the 2025-2030 dietary guidelines come out, instead of taking stuff away from these menus, let's talk about what we could add to make them more health promoting. And so we are asking them to add a minimum amount of fiber over the course of a week to the menus. And ultimately what that means is getting some beans, some legumes, some pulses in that meat alternate category on menus, because they're not going to quintuple the amount of broccoli they're serving kids to meet those fiber guidelines. We know kids need filling, hearty, healthy, delicious meals. And it's totally possible to do if you're looking at the center of the plate. That is awesome. I, where do we sign? Is there yeah. a petition? Oh, I'll send you. Yeah, I'll put the link in the show notes. Truly, there is a, there's actually an endorsement element. We need everybody to endorse this because the more people and organizations, if you have endorsing agency from your organization, like if you're a member of AAP where you live and you have endorsing authority or you can get them to endorse it, every time we go back to them, the more people we have endorsing this, the stronger our case is. Wow. There's a lot to think about there. I I almost hate to switch gears, but I just have to ask because I know Balanced has some experience with hospital food as well. And that's an area that is Mm -hmm. near and dear to my heart. I recently started working at an Adventist hospital, and I'm so pleased with the amount of plant-based options and how they have like big posters everywhere about nutrition and eating healthy is good for your health. And it's really astounding. I've never worked in a place like that before. My husband, who's an ICU nurse, talks about how grotesque the menu at his hospital is when he has to order food for post-cath heart people. And it's like, would you like the burger or the lamb? And it's, so maybe just explaining a little bit about how hospital food policy gets made since it's private, not public, and how we as yes. 
staff and providers can maybe implement or force force some change. Totally. Yes. Another institution near and dear to my heart. So uh, unlike schools where regulations are the primary driver of what gets purchased and menued, when we think about more private institutions, we think about their food service as a for-profit entity of that institution. So that is not the food service in a hospital is divided into two components. So there's patient meals and there's cafeteria most often. The tricky part is that 70% of food service in a hospital is from the cafeteria and not patient meals broadly. And so if they are making decisions based on what 70%, like 70% of their revenue comes from what is going to make the money from people visiting the hospital or staff at the hospital, they're making decisions based on what sells very quickly and easily to people who are stressed uh, in time in need of comfort or in an unfamiliar environment. And so a lot of the foods we see on cafeteria menus in hospitals are very comfort food. They're almost, they almost always replicate fast food type environments because people also don't have a ton of time. They're not trying to stay at the hospital longer. And if they're going down to the cafeteria, they're probably just like popping out and they want to be back to the person who is in the hospital. And so it is, when we think about changing the food environment in hospitals, we have to segment it that way. Um, and then when you think about patient menus, there are like some attempts to have that food be slightly healthier when possible. Um, having the dietitian team on staff, having nutrition experts or specific special, like medical specialties informing that is ideal, but it very, like the menus actually very rarely reflect the medical expertise or the nutrition expertise. Hospitals, although they are like an opportunity to improve patient health in the short term, there's not often with the nutrition teams there that we've worked with this consideration for the hospital to be an intervention to change long-term behavior. They really want people who are in pain or sick to be comfortable, to have something familiar, give the heart patient the double bacon cheeseburger. They already had a heart attack. It's not like being at the hospital is going to change their mind. When really it's like, oh, actually, this is quite possibly a large inflection point in their life and an opportunity to change that. And so if you are working in a hospital and you want to change the cafeteria food, we have found it to be easiest to advocate to add a plant-based option. And then when we work with the food and nutrition services team there, we can say, hey, listen, we know your business. This is about money. If you're adding something to the menu, you have to take something off. Like you have to break even. You can't just keep adding stuff to your menu. That's, that is a conversation that we have. When it's patient menus, it actually becomes a little bit more difficult because there are so many more parties involved. But if we're thinking about impact, again, our efforts are largely best utilized in the for-profit food service space at a hospital, unfortunately. That doesn't sound very hopeful, really. <laughs> in the short term, it's not hopeful. In the short term, it's not hopeful. But again, we're building long-term habits. So we start where we can start. If adding a black bean burger to the menu is where we start, that's where we start. And then we have small successes and we build from there. I think I had mentioned this a while back. We did a webinar series with the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine, the climate group and the wilderness group talking about mm -hmm. the environment and the greening of healthcare. 
And we had a wonderful presentation by someone who talked about the terrible carbon footprint of hospitals and healthcare and made zero reference to food. Sure. And when I brought it up, I it was basically like, well, you know, it because people can't see sterile processing in the ORs, you know, it doesn't affect them, but customers really want what they want at the cafeteria. And I just was very disheartened about that. And certainly there seemed to be almost no actual dietary input into the patient offering at most hospitals whatsoever. And it's, yes, you can choose how many grams of sugar, but it's all still garbage sources of sugar, right? And so, like, I would rather have lots of fruit on the menu and no mention of sugar for a diabetic and not have any white items or refined things, um, that would be nice, but that's not an option. Exactly. It's like, how many grams of sugar do you want? Okay, that's what you get. And yeah, I think it's a big missed opportunity for patients, for health, for our environmental footprint, uh, all, all those reasons. But I so what do we do? Like what, what, how do I, so I, this is a fun random story, but I met the head of the patient advisory council for a group of Colorado hospitals who volunteers his what? time one day a week as a ranger in Rocky Mountain National Park. And we spent like 20 minutes talking to this guy on the trail. And he mentioned that he was on this patient advisory council. So I wonder if you, like, similarly from parents, it makes a difference with school. If, yes. Do you have any examples or you know, experience working with patient advisory councils maybe to get things changed? Yeah, patient advisory councils specifically, no, but that sounds like a really prime opportunity, right? Because there is, when we work with institutions, it's pretty easy to categorize what excuses are going to come up, why they won't make change. Change is hard. Change is scary. Change that goes wrong reflects poorly on the people making that change, not necessarily like the customers. And so there is like very real apprehension, and I, we want to totally respect that. At the same time, this idea that patients want what they want is true to the extent that like toddlers want what they want. And you don't always have to give a toddler exactly what they want, but within healthy boundaries and parameters, people, just human beings, will make the best choice for them in that environment. And so this, it might not necessarily look like immediately overhauling a menu, but there is evidence to show, you know, when a certain proportion of a menu is healthier, people see that and they start making those changes. And then you have demonstrated demand. The way we operate now is this assumption that demand is a singular driver of change or singular driver of decision making. But what we know is actually when the supply is controlled, people make choices within, that per like within those parameters. And if we control that supply to be proportionally, proportionately healthier over time, people make those changes over time. I have a child who has type 1 diabetes. We were in the hospital last year. By the time we could catch our breath after being admitted, it was like 1 a.m. Cafeteria was still open. It's not like I was going to not get what was in the cafeteria. I was going to go down there and find what I could find. And so if there were supply parameters within that, that encouraged a behavior one way or the other, maybe that's an opportunity for people to explore new foods even or have a healthier version of their comfort food. Um, there's just so much more power in 
the decision maker at these institutions and they give themselves credit for, I think a lot of the times they feel they're at the whim of the customer and the demand. But, you know, there's a reason chicken tenders sell so well right now. It's because for the last 40 years, Tyson has been pushing chicken tenders on every meal and that's comfortable on every menu and that's very comfortable for people. So now they're used to it. Um, and so if you just think, well, what if things changed right now and in 40 years people were like, yeah, I would love to have the chickpea curry instead of the chicken nugget. But I think thinking of patients as consumers is misguided. And I mm. think that there's so many misguided things about how our healthcare system works in terms of its consumption. And that's totally. another whole million hour discussion, but it should, this is like a prescription. I'm prescribing yes. you medicines for your diabetes. I'm also prescribing you this healthy diet that you need to order off the menu and understand why it's good for your diabetes, right? You're not a con here as a consumer, like you're not choosing which style of insulin you like better because you know, the color <laughs> or what's in fashion or whatever, like you are getting a prescription for something that in my medical opinion, I think is good for your health. And that's the thing that I think how we need to be approaching food is like, this is part of your healing. This is part of your recovery. This is part of your health maintenance, right? We don't let you smoke in the hospital. We don't let you drink in the hospital. We will treat your alcohol withdrawal, but we don't give you beer. We used to. So I, yeah. I think we need to start approaching it as this is a prescription for your health. But we need I to show that them vision. that it can taste good too. Like instead of just giving them lettuce as the only vegan option in the hospital with no dressing, because we can't even be bothered to have a vegan dressing, have healthy plant-based options, but that actually taste good. And we can do it. Like we've had so many guests on the show. We've been talking about the foods we've eaten all the time. It's easy at an industrial level. It's easy at a personal level. Like it does not have to taste bad. And to Audrey's point, if we can put these items on the menu that taste good and then the demand for them is proven by people ordering that all the time, then more options will get on there. So if we can make small incremental changes and keep going. And to Tracy's point, of course, we should be telling our patients to not eat the bacon double cheeseburger after their heart attack. And we shouldn't provide it for them with easy access on our hospital menus. It just doesn't make sense. There's no world in which that's healthy. So why do we offer it to patients when we, to Tracy's point, stopped offering them beer in the hospital a few years ago, if I'm correct? <laughs> I'm sure different hospitals have different policies there. Yeah, I, again, like when, so this kind of speaks to this bigger, even this even bigger policy conflict of interests, right? So we're talking about it at the sort of micro level at a hospital. But if you think about the role of the USDA, they have two main responsibilities. One is to promote and uphold the profits of the agricultural industry, and then also determine the dietary guidelines that inform the choices people make. And you can't do both objectively. And so in a hospital setting where the food is a source of profit and in a for-profit healthcare system, we are only getting the choices that maximize profits for people. Not people, industries. I think, and I think as physicians, again, we've lost some of the power in our white coat, but our ability to say like to a food service or to a hospital administrator, I want to be able to literally prescribe certain foods and dietary practices to yeah. my patients. How can you help me make that possible at this facility? And how can we change that so that I can start to be prescribing a healthier diet to my patients when they're here? And, and maybe, you know, small steps starting the conversation that way. 
what I will say is just based on our advocacy, there is a power in numbers. So to the degree that people in specific hospitals or healthcare systems can organize around this issue, the better. We have those resources. We'd be happy to help. We are delicate to the fact that you are employees of an industry or a corporation or a company that may not agree with the asks you're making. Um, but what I would say on top of that is it takes way less pressure than people think it takes <laughs> to get change made. Decision makers don't love pressure. And if it comes from one person, they can ignore it for an ex like a certain amount of time. But when we start to see groups of people applying even small amounts of pressure, people will make change much faster. This is why lobbyists work, right? Like a lobbying firm of like 10 people can pay one senator $75,000 and suddenly there's a bill in the you know, federal government that says, oh yeah, kids are desperate to have whole milk back in schools. No, they're not. They're not. But congratulations on your $75,000 and pressure from 10 people. Right? That's, it takes way less pressure than people really think. It, think. it takes way less pressure than people think. But what it does require is some organizing of those people. You've given us so much hope and despair at the same nope. time, but I think ways to move, ways to move. Small incremental change can make huge progress over time. And we are in, it's not, you know, it's not about what you eat today. It's about what you eat over a lifetime. And the same is true for everybody. So making these changes can hopefully have huge impacts for our children's lives. And, you know, looking at it that way, maybe makes it a little bit more hopeful. Yeah. But it's been wonderful to have you on today and chat. What can people do to get involved? Yes. So this is where we channel outrage into actions. That is the combination of despair and hope. You channel that outrage into taking action. Lots of ways for people to get involved in this work locally and at a bigger scale. So if folks are interested in doing this work locally, running a campaign in their hospital or organizing people just around this concept, we have tons of resources. Anyone can visit Balanced, that's with a D, so balanced.org. And if they're interested in running a campaign, it's under the advocacy tab. If people want to endorse the Focus on Fiber initiative, we would just be absolutely thrilled. And that's balanced.org slash fiber, about like 20% down the page, there's a little link they can click. So a fifth down the page, you click on that link, takes about 30 seconds, you sign your name, it gets you know, put onto a sheet of paper. And every time we show up to have a conversation with the USDA, we have more and more pressure to apply. And then there are lots of other initiatives, lots of other great organizations doing this work. So nutrition policy, health promoting nutrition policy, Google search, get involved with any organization doing this work. Truly, it is about uh, having an organizing body who will take this cause to the right people. Thank you so much, Audrey, and for all you've done for our podcast and for all the work you're doing. And we encourage everybody to check out thebalance.org and see the amazing things that they're doing. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you for doing this podcast. This is part of the work. This is an organizing body where we get the information to the right people. And so we are just so thrilled to be involved. Every time we produce an episode, I learn so much. And I'm so glad that you all have committed to this and you're putting it into the world. So thanks. We're lucky to have you. This is Tracy and Eden signing off. Less meat means less disease. Go have a happy plant-based day. <laughs>